This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Slate listeners. It's Dan Coyce with an important message for you. By now, you probably know about Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. It's a subscription that gives you ad-free versions of every Slate podcast, like Mom and Dad are Fighting, and others like Dear Prudence and the Political Gab Fest, all without any ad breaks. But if you're a reader of Slate, as well as a listener, you might have noticed that Slate.com recently installed a paywall. So we wanted you to know that a Slate Plus membership will also give you access to everything on our website. From our recent coverage of the coronavirus to Who Counts, our ongoing investigation into whose voices will be left out of the 2020 election, to our culture and lifestyle coverage, we're committed to keeping you informed about everything this year has in store. And your support is extremely important to helping us continue this important work. Please sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash momanddadplus. And if you're already a member, you can just log in at slate.com slash login. Thanks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 16th, the Dad Can Play 2 edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who's 12, and I'm currently quarantining in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding column and a freelance writer, and mom to Naima, who is six and we reside in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm a mom to three boys, Henry, eight, Oliver, five, and Teddy, three. I'm coming to you from Navarre, Florida, in what used to be my office and now is firmly the Lego room. Today on the show, we have a question from a mom whose son is hitting a mommy-only phase in the middle of quarantine. Is it because she enjoys playing little kid games more than her husband? And what can she do about that? And today, I'm going to tell a story. The story is called Shirley Valentine. It's a story of theater, teen crushes, college decisions, and how absurdly in the dark we all were in the pre-internet era. I think you'll be surprised by this story, and I think if you have a teenager, you might want to listen to it with them. So, it's this week's Everyone is Fighting Now segment for parents and kids. If you want to zip ahead to that teen-friendly segment, we'll put the timestamp in the episode notes. As always, we will have triumphs and fails and recommendations, so let's start with triumphs and fails. Jamila, do you have a triumph or a fail for us this week? So, I'm going to say I think I'm on the cusp of a triumph. (laughs) I'm going to just claim it in advance. Last week was spring break. I mean, hasn't it been spring break for the past month and a half? Spring break forever, <laughs> as James Franco would say. Spring break forever. But last week, there was no instruction from the school and, you know, nothing to check off in terms of the completed assignments, checklist that may or may not exist, whatever. The things that we were supposed to do, we didn't have any for last week. So she was able to indulge in her true passions, which are screen time, dancing, and general mayhem. (laughs) Plus, you know, some quality bonding time with her brother, which is great. I was talking to her the other night in the bath, and I apologize to her again, because as I mentioned before, I didn't initially tell Naima when the first two weeks of school were canceled that this is 
undoubtedly going to go on much longer than two weeks. I said, this will probably go on a bit longer, but you know, I realize now that she didn't take that in. And so now LA schools have been closed through the summer, but there's been talk of the county reopening May 15th. And that information was passed along to residents before the announcement that school will be closed for the rest of the school year. So we're operating with May 15th as a possibility with, of course, most of us knowing that that wasn't going to happen either because it's less than a month away. I told her the other night, listen, there's talk of things opening up in a couple of weeks, but I just want you to know that we need to be prepared to not return to school until next fall. And I don't know what's going to happen with summer or summer camp. I think it's pretty unlikely we'll be able to do those things. I know Dan's face right now just as if he had not thought about it. Oh, I've done nothing but think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Every time it comes up, it's like a slug to the chest. It's like, no, that can't be true. And when someone else says it, that makes it more true. And so anyway, she looks at me and she says, I think you think I like school a whole lot more than I actually do. And she proceeds to tell me how it's great and all, and she misses her friends, and she really likes her teacher, but math is just getting completely ridiculous, and how is she to do things on her fingers now that they're dealing with numbers more than 10? She's run out of fingers. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's stupid and ridiculous, and she's happy not being there. And so I said, you know, I understand, and I have my math issues as well, and we'll continue to work with you on those, I said. But, you know, I know that this is destabilizing and difficult for you, and I want to try and make this time better than it has been. So I think we need to integrate some classes that reflect on your interests. And so this week, we're going to have at least one fashion class. And I'd like to do a music history class. We've done a lot of listening to music and I've tried to say like, hey, you know, that's a sample from blah, 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 blah. And she's just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, mom. But I'm like, no, we're going to have some dedicated time to these arts. The fashion class was inspired by the fact that Naeem was very big into picking out outfits and is very much a little uh, fashionista, but also doesn't know about coordinating just yet. And sometimes it literally, I just can't even when I see her wearing like, black and blue and brown and red and pink all together. And it just looks like I don't take care of my child, but I want to encourage her creative expression through dress. So we're going to do a little bit of learning about the foundations of all that stuff and how it works. So that's my triumph. My homeschool heart is exploding. This is like like what I hope for all, like those are the best lessons. That sums up why I love homeschooling when the kids get really into something and then we can do it. And you're passing on like, real world knowledge to her. They're important things and they're even more important if they're important to her. Yeah. So I love that. Feel Thank free you. to use Slate's incredible Wonder Week series for your music history lesson on Stevie Wonder if you want to just take that as the curriculum. I would love that. She's a very big Stevie Wonder fan, so she'd absolutely love that. She can learn everything about him, including the people who absolutely positively believe that he's lying and isn't blind at all. Okay, uh, Elizabeth, do you have a triumph or a fail for us? I have a fail. And before I get started, I just want to say that I blame my husband for all of this. Good. So we had, I don't even know how this started, but basically six months ago, we kind of made up these other children that lived in our house named Frank and Gary. And like I said, it was, it was sort of Jeff's idea that got out of control. But like when no one would clean up or like we'd walk into a room and it would be a complete mess and we'd be like, all right, who dumped this out? Who did this? None of the three kids want to take credit. So we would just say, okay, well, it must have been Frank and Gary. But since they're at soccer, we all have to clean up. And then we would all help clean up. And this just kind of went on about everything. Also, Frank and Gary are 
busy. So they're never here. And they're also model children. So like when we all had to go get our vaccinations, it was like, oh, well, Frank and Gary got theirs and they weren't worried. So we're all going to be fine. So it's like not me and the family circus, but responsible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're never here. They go to public school. The school bus stops in front of our house. So (laughs) the children believe they got on the... We don't think they believed any of this. It was just kind of like, we thought it was this big joke. It was funny. We weren't sure if the now eight-year-old was like playing along or asking questions, but he would say things like, oh, well, we have all these extra bikes because when we moved back from the Netherlands, we brought bikes for all the kids. He'd say like, oh, well, we do have enough bikes for two extra kids. And we do have like these extra beds in our house for two extra kids. So it's just been this like thing we've been doing and I thought joking about, well, this week at dinner, just like out of the blue, we made some joke about gosh, we wish they were here because they would clear the table. And the eight-year-old just bursts into tears. And he says, I think that Frank and Gary are not real, but I'm really just not sure. (laughs) And we were like, oh gosh, it's a joke. They are not real. We never thought you thought it was real. And he was like, I know they're not real, but like we do have these bikes and the bus does stop in front of our house. And like, we do sometimes check out library books that get left out. It was just like this pouring of everything oh. we have ever said about Frank and Gary. So I, oh. I we apologized, we assured, but it has been the topic of conversation at every meal. Like they all want to talk about the fact that they are not real. So I feel terrible because it was supposed to be this like rallying joke, but apparently only Jeff and I were in on it. So that's yes. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of adults creating imaginary friends for kids. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we created imaginary children. That's exactly what we did. (laughs) That is incredible. So, fail. Did you all have imaginary friends? I don't know if I did, but Henry, when we moved to the Netherlands, he had this book of Disney princesses he would check out from the library in Colorado. And when we moved to the Netherlands, he announced that all the princesses had moved with us in miniaturized form. And they were with us for many, many months. I had an imaginary friend named George. Mm -hmm. I believe I created him in collaboration with my grandfather (sighs) during one visit. Then he just hung around for a couple of years. Did your grandfather want you to play with somebody else? Was it like, oh, yeah. I assume now that that was the case. Yeah. (laughs) Should go watch TV together while old grandpa takes a nap or something like that. Right. I, I mean, I get that now, Jamila. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did I just ruin George for you? As of 10 we, seconds ago. We are killing imaginary friends today. <laughs> Left and right today. <laughs> Naima won't commit. So I think part of it is that she's not a true only child. Like I had them, you know, like out of necessity in a way that I don't think she necessarily does. Every once in a while, one will pop up, but they don't usually stay very long. But mine, I feel like I might have mentioned this on an early show when I joined the podcast. My primary one was Peter Bankman from Ghostbusters. That's a very sexy imaginary friend. Yeah. To this day, I just can't understand why it was my imaginary friend, a 30-something-year-old man, as opposed to a kid. I like that he maybe helped you get in a little bit of trouble, but really, actually, he was a good guy, but he talked back to authority. I like that. He called the mayor a dick. I liked his sarcasm quite a bit. That was a big selling point. Him and Raphael from Ninja Turtles. But I don't know that Raphael became an imaginary friend so much as a crush. But that's totally something to talk about. Never. (laughs) Mom and dad are fighting after dark. (laughs) Elizabeth, great fail. Fantastic fail. Excellent. It's not only Jeff's fault. Nice try. I have a triumph (laughs) this week. 
longtime listeners may recall that the extremely catchy anagram for the daily system we have to give a little structure to our kids is Ossel Tickergum. Part of that policy, uh, in addition to the ossling and the ticker gaming, is that each kid has to make dinner once a week. That was the announcement we made when quarantine began. We said, you know, you would have some parental support. We would help you with planning. We'd even help you with cooking things if you need the help, but it's mostly up to you. And we said that, you know how you say things, and in your heart, you know, you're never actually going to do it. You'll never pull that off. But my triumph is that we have so far successfully stuck to it. And every week since quarantine began, each kid has cooked one meal and triumph beyond triumph. I can even say that cooking with both of them has been really very enjoyable. Like I sort of thought it would be horrible, but it's something that we just felt we had to do because we said it once in a spirit of being good parents and then we're stuck with that terrible decision forever. Like when you punish your kids by taking away TV and then you're like, oh, that only punishes me. But it's been really great. Last night, Lyra made chicken tenders out of some chicken thighs and some cornflakes. And then we made a salad and she put them on top of the salad. And Lyra mostly followed the recipe. And then even at one point said out loud, I guess there are some things that I like about cooking. She was referring to pounding the cornflakes with a rolling pin, (laughs) but that was great. That felt like a legitimate triumph that we've stuck to it and they've enjoyed it. It's a huge triumph. Take any joy. Yes. Like, were they into cooking when they were younger? I always wonder, like, because so many teenagers are averse to it. I'm like, were they into it when they were kids and it was messy, fun play? Or these are the kids that were never into it. Harper has always been into it, though, mostly baking. She's less into making a meal. Lyra... Like when she was three would, you know, make meatballs with her grandma, which meant that she would just like give her some ingredients and she would make an enormous mess with them for an hour and that would be it. But I don't think she cared about the cooking part now. And she never has really. Mm -hmm. Food appears on her plate. She eats it. She never thought about it before and she never thinks about it again. But now she can prepare it herself. Well, almost. Yeah. But we're getting there. They're moving towards a, you know, point in life in which they will need to prepare food for themselves. Sure. Should they ever leave the house again? That definitely <laughs> seems exactly. the case. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, talk some business before we move on to the rest of the show. Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified about all the parenting content on Slate.com, including this very show, plus Jamila's Karen feeding columns and much, much more. Slate.com has actually been a smorgasbord of extremely fascinating parenting content in the last few weeks, both coronavirus and non-coronavirus associated. There's just been a lot of really amazing writing on parenting. Two great essays this week from Mark O'Connell and Emily Gould, excerpted and adapted from their new books. You can find out all about that in the parenting newsletter, plus it's just like a personal email for me where I complain about things every week. Sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. Also, check us out on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. It's a really fun, active community. We moderate it so it doesn't get out of control, but we don't moderate it so much that you can't express your disagreement with our opinions on the show, as many, many people did after last week's show. We didn't ban anyone, we promise. In Slate Plus today, how should you respond when your kid calls you stupid? Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. At one point, I was not just stupid, I was a dumbass. And that was 
truly a moment in which I had to go sit and compose myself a little bit because it wasn't a matter of like, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to scream and go crazy. I was just like, what the fuck do I say to this? To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program. It is a great way to support everything that Slate does. For just 35 bucks for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So support Mom and Dad are Fighting. Go to Slate.com slash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On to this week's listener question. It is being read this week by the brilliant Shasha Leonard. Hi, Mom and Dad. I am mom to a three and a half year old boy. We are starting to see signs that we might be entering a mommy only phase. And I'd like to minimize it as much as possible, especially since we're under a shelter in place order for the next month, at least. The problem is I am naturally suited to engage this age. I love toddlers and their silly games and ridiculous imaginations. So part of me wonders if my son prefers me because I'm just willing to play his games while his dad finds that kind of play difficult to engage with. I know some adults just don't like little kid play and that's okay, but that's where our son is. When he's older and ready for video games or big Lego sets or Nerf guns, my husband would love to share those things with him. Do you have any ideas for activities they could do now that both the toddler and his dad would find engaging to do together? Their current pastimes are wrestling, reading stories, and watching movies. They love all those activities, which gives me hope that we can minimize or sidestep this phase. Thanks. Mama needs a break. Sometimes. So I think that it's very normal for kids to go through a phase where they like one parent over the other. In my house, it has been me for all three children, I think just because of like contact time. And then I've talked about this before, but Oliver is like in a constant mommy phase. Like I am his preferred parent for everything. I totally get where this mom is coming from. Like it can be totally overwhelming. But what we have done that has worked is that in our daily routine, there are just things that dad does that I just don't do. And some of those are fun. And some of those are, you know, just like mundane tasks. But when it comes time for bath time, for example, that is a Jeff activity and he makes it fun or reads or whatever they do during that time. Even if he says like, well, I want mom to do this. I just sort of say dad does bath. That's just how it is. Dad also does a lot of the like outdoor exploring, wrestling, the kind of things she's talking about. And Jeff also does our bedtime stories. I read a lot during the day, but those are just things that unless he is not here, I just don't offer the opportunity for me to be there. And he has found a way to sort of acknowledge that he is not their first choice, but that he still loves them and he's excited to be with them. And that has, I mean, we have had some days in which they cry and they say, you know, I only want mom to do this. And he's sort of like, okay, well I'm reading story and we're in bed and he pushes through. I will say that's what happens 
is that they have just accepted that he is the parent that does these things. He has made them fun. It sounds like she has all this fun stuff she loves to do. That's great. And she should keep doing that. And when she needs time to herself, she should just take it. And the dad should step in and say, like, I know you really want mom to do this with you, but she's busy. So, you know, you're stuck with me. I love you and we can have fun. Because I think acknowledging that, you know, I know that you are in this phase in which you want your mom to be here. You can say, I wish she was here too. But I think at the end of the day, you just affirm that you love them. I also think it's important that dad does not let this get to him in any way, or at least show that to the child, because getting a reaction can also be something that kids really like. And so just acknowledging that it's frustrating, but continuing on with the fun thing. And the more you build these routines in, like Oliver still says like, well, I want mom to do bedtime or I want mom to do bath. And we're just sort of like, oh, well, dad does it. And then I hear him laughing in there and having a great time. And, you know, Jeff does his bedtime, however he wants to do it. And I just don't go in or don't get involved unless Jeff asks me to, because once I am in there, it's like, well, now I'm here and I can do it. So I think if she needs the time, she should take the time and just make sure to give dad those opportunities, even if he's not the child's first choice. Okay. So building routines and making sure that you take the time and you build things into the day that they're always dad's things. That's really great advice. Jamila, what do you think? That was essentially going to be my advice, that there were dad rituals that are built into every day because I get the impression that that's not the case now. I think a combination of both dad learning to get silly and they already like to wrestle, which is great. Maybe we need to have WrestleMania costumes and a stage and more of a production around, you know, this thing that usually could just be the two of us kind of cuddling on the floor and rolling around. Doing some of the stuff that you don't like doing. I'm not a naturally silly person either, so I totally can relate. Like, I'm funny. I like to tell jokes. I love that my daughter's old enough to deal with sarcasm now. We're having a whole lot more fun than when I had to sit through endless knock-knock, who's there? (laughs) Tomato. Tomato who? I'm a tomato. You know, like, that was not a fun era, but it is an era that all parents have to suffer through. And so you, you have to just kind of lean into it. But I think that ensuring that are things that are specifically yours, that are always performed by you, that become special and have some meaning to you is perhaps the best approach to ensuring that it doesn't become mommy is the source of all comfort and joy in this household. I think that that is all really good advice. I would like to maybe add some specific ideas. I agree with you that it doesn't sound like this is a house where they have a lot of built-in dad rituals, but it also sounds like the dad needs things that are just sort of off the cuff ways that he can spend time with these kids where it's not like pretending they're in a castle or whatever bullshit they want to do. And I can really relate to this dad and I'm jealous of this mom because it is a very particular skill to be able to do certain kinds of pretend or imaginary or silly play with kids exactly that age and to enjoy it in our house. Neither of us particularly enjoyed that, neither me nor Alia. And so that age for both our kids was often a struggle for us to like feel engaged and feel like, We were offering something to our kid that they liked and that we weren't just like going through the motions. Okay. So first of all, I would suggest, especially in this time of quarantine, if they like watching movies, you should be fucking doubling down on movies. For example, it's Totoro time slash every other Studio Ghibli movie that I'm forever recommending on this show. But like that is the perfect movie for a three and a half year old. Watch it right now. Watch it again tomorrow. Watch it again the next day. You will never be bored by it because it's beautiful and great. Your kid will love it. And 
If they watch one movie a day right now, fucking watch two movies a day. Who cares? It's the quarantine. You said that big Lego sets aren't quite right yet, but you think that your husband would enjoy those things. So I would maybe suggest Magnetiles or Duplo. Those are like not as fun as a Lego set. Well, for adults, as a Lego set where like at the end of it, you have a castle or a TIE fighter or whatever, but you can build interesting, fun things with them. There are also a lot of simpler model kits for little kids out there. If you think that your son is a kid who would sit for a while and follow instructions, if your husband likes cooking, cooking with little kids is really fun. Like I do remember those days of sitting with Lyra and making quote unquote meatballs. I mean, it makes a huge mess of your kitchen and only very Seldom would do you come out of it with eatable food, but like it's a thing you can do together that isn't always just like imagine you're a banana. It's actually <laughs> like doing something with your hands. You can do nature walks together. You can do some kind of like kid yoga or kid fitness together, which is something that like benefits you in some small way and might also be fun for the kid. If he likes reading with a kid, he maybe expand the repertoire to the kinds of books where you're finding things on the page, like the Richard Scary Busy Town books. I'm also a fan of the Richard Scary Busy Town game, which is great for kids that age, which also involves a lot of finding things. And then also, if you are a handy person, if you're like a guy who has a workbench or a tool area and you know how to use tools, unlike me, for a lot of families I know, three and a half is right around the age where kids love to start working with tools with a parent. I mean, obviously you're not going to break out the belt sander or something, but just like hammers and nails and screws and a bunch of two by fours and a handsaw. And you just start cutting and hammering things together and screwing things together. And you see what kind of crazy shit you make. And then go see if it floats in the bathtub. That's great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually like maybe your kid will get interested enough to start making real things, but that's just like a way to occupy time with them. You can maybe even be working on a thing of your own while they're hammering on their own shit over in the corner. But like, that's a way to be working with them. The caveat to all of these things is that your husband will still find doing a lot of these things boring with a three and a half year old, because no matter what you're doing with a three and a half year old, often they want to take the play into pretend play or imaginative play. Even if they don't, they yell at you about stuff and they take forever to do stuff. And at the end, probably what they made is bad and you have to let them do things their way. And honestly, anything becomes dull if you're doing it for like two hours with a three-year-old. But as Jamila and Elizabeth have already said, that's just part of the drill when you have a three and a half year old. So letter writer, tell your husband, find the things you hate the least and fucking feign enthusiasm for them because you, letter writer, cannot be the only parent who plays with this kid for the next 128 weeks or whatever. You've got to find a solution for this. And that solution is sometimes going to be for him to do stuff that he doesn't like. Three and a half is a difficult age to entertain at times, but it's also a child that is old enough to be introduced to things that the parent is passionate about, you know, depending upon what those things are. It could be a sport. It could be NASCAR, you know. The new edition story came out when my daughter was three and a half and it was a three night, two hour miniseries. I was very excited to see. And this was at a point where we were watching Disney Junior with dinner every single night without fail. 
And it was our daily TV time. It was the only time we really watched it. You know, I said, we're going to watch something else. And she was super upset about it. And within 10 minutes, she was just completely wrapped. You know, I, I think about Dan talking about, was it maybe a hard day's night yeah. that he'd introduced his girls to recently? So if you're a Beatles fan, like, I just think that things are not typically tailored toward children and then finding ways to, you know, we ended up having this great bond over this group that I grew up listening to as a very little girl. And she ended up having a new edition themed fourth birthday party, you know, something you never think. And to this day, she's seven now. They are still a constant subject of conversation and interest and wonder in our home. So you could get him hooked on your favorite band. If you're a big hip hop fan, they've got all types of kids, hip hop books and records and things. Now, music, art in general could be a really fun way to fill some of that space. It's important to remember that your child is not in charge of the house and that you are still the parent. And for as much as, yes, you're going to be bored some, it's also okay for the activity to not be like their first choice all the time. And I think three to five is like this sweet spot where they, I mean, Dan, you sort of suggested this, but they are happy to help with things. Now, granted, they're not a lot of help, but like, my kids love folding laundry with me and it's, yes, it's kind of a wreck, but like my three-year-old will run pieces, you know, from the laundry room to where he keeps his clothes one piece at a time. Well, we can do that for 20 minutes and I can fold some stuff in between. You know, I say like, wow, how did you get that one there? Oh, I flew it there. Okay. Can you fly this one there? And then he's like, well, no, I'm a tiger. It's like, great. We'll just take it there. So I think there's ways to like have them be imaginative while you're getting you know, stuff done. And if your husband isn't sure what to do that, I know for me, I sort of, when Jeff says like, oh, I'm going into the yard to do X, I'm like, great. Teddy would love to come with you and help. <laughs> and then it's like, he can't say no. Um, and yes, it's oh kind of a disaster, God. but yeah, right. You know, just like I have all three in here. So you're going to take one. Jeff is like the big cook in our house. And I am constantly like, Teddy, grab an apron. Daddy's cooking and just sending him into the disaster zone. So I think that's okay too. Again, if there's like a power saw in use or something dangerous, I'm not going to send him along. But if Jeff's weeding or building something, like a kid can totally be there messing around nearby and pretending they're building something and, you know, give them a little tool belt and then they think they're pretending and you don't really have to pretend because you're for real doing the activity that they're pretending to do. So these are great suggestions of like ways to get dad involved. And dad, get involved. Play this segment for your husband, for fuck's sake. Okay, thank you. Good answers, everyone. And thank you, Letter Writer, for writing in. We hope this helps. If you have a question or a problem for us, send it our way. Send it to slate.com. We've gotten a bunch of great letters. We are so grateful for them. We have a bunch lined up for future episodes. We can't wait, but we always want more. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
Okay. Here on Mom and Dad are Fighting, we are trying to create a little something each week that families can listen to together. The segment's called Everyone is Fighting Now. We hope you enjoyed last week's Q&A with the zookeeper, and we'll have more interactive interviews like that soon. But today, I am going to tell a story. I think that this story will be most interesting to adults and to teenagers, especially teenagers who have started thinking about college. If you have littler kids, they might like it too, but I'll just let you know in advance that there are a few swears. Fewer than my usual number of swears, but still some swears. The story is called Shirley Valentine. My oldest daughter is a freshman, which means that this year is the first year that she's gotten all kinds of advice from adults telling her how important her choice of college will be. Everyone's like... Better start thinking about it now. And she sees older kids like sweating their extracurriculars or touring campuses. And they're all weighing early admission or regular admission. There's a lot of pressure about this where we live. This is the story I will tell her when she seems totally overwhelmed by the weight of the college decision. It's the story of how I ended up at the University of North Carolina. The day I first saw Shirley Valentine, she was reclining on a sun-dappled Mediterranean beach in Milwaukee. It was October 1991. I was a senior in high school, and my mom's boyfriend, who was on the board of a small local theater company, had gotten me a job as a non-union stagehand for a production of the play Shirley Valentine. It was the first afternoon of Tech Week, and Johanna Morrison, the actress playing Shirley, was running through Act Two. Shirley Valentine is a one-woman play by Willie Russell, first performed in 1986, about a Liverpool housewife who frees herself from the shackles of matrimony for a holiday of sun, sand, and sex in Greece. The space was empty, but for the actress on stage, the director and his assistant in the seats, a small crew in the booth, and me. I came in just as Johanna, as Shirley, spoke to the empty seats. He kissed me stretch marks, you know. He did. He said, he said they were lovely because they were part of me and I was lovely. He said, he said, stretch marks weren't to be taken to be hidden away. They were to be displayed, to be proud of. He said, my stretch marks showed that I was alive and that I'd survived, that they were marks of life. Aren't men full of shit? The director called out, Hold please, Joanna. We need to work on this cue. She stopped talking. Stopped acting. You could see it happen. And introduced herself to me. She asked if we were going to be working together. I'm Dan. I said, Hi. Yes, we will. I'm going to be a stagehand on the show. Shirley, can we have you back on stage, please? Well, that was it. I realize now that my mom's boyfriend was probably trying to demonstrate for me the drudgery of an actual day-to-day commitment. The theater was not glamorous and starry, but hard work. But any lesson he might have hoped I'd learn vanished the instant they restarted the rehearsal, when Johanna, in her frumpy one-piece bathing suit, shifted her focus to me, hungry for an audience in the middle of a dull tech through. Nearly 30 years later, I still remember the force of that actorly attention, like the moment when the lamp in the Pixar logo turns and looks right at you. The second best thing about Tech Week was that rehearsal started at 3 o'clock, so I got to leave pre-calc early, every day. 
I would fidget in my desk for 10 minutes before collecting my things, and Mr. Young would say, Oh, I guess Kois has to leave for his play. He believed that to be belittling, but I found it so rewarding. Of course, a buffoon like that wouldn't understand what was valuable about an experience like this. Mr. Young clearly thought I was an entitled little shit, which I was. Even in subjects I liked, I rarely worked hard in pre-calc. I basically did nothing. I gravitated to teachers who exhibited that crucial willingness to, to look past a teen's demeanor to see who he might become if steered in the right direction. Mr. Young must have had that with other kids, but he did not have that with me. He met my disdain with antagonism. It's a response that even then I couldn't say I didn't deserve. I reveled in the dislike of a math teacher and baseball coach with a blonde mustache and short sleeve button down shirts. I thought, this is the exact kind of person who should hate me. I was hyper and hectic. I had a girlfriend and a group of buddies, but I was lonely all the time. I was young for my grade and didn't drink and never went to a single party. I had inarticulate ideas about the world but that didn't stop me from loudly articulating them all the time. I was insufferable. I understand now that I was searching for some clue as to the kind of person I might be when I finally was a person. And I dreamed that someone would reach out a hand and touch me and say, this is who you are. I would never have articulated it this way, but I hoped working on this play would help me make sense. To myself. I hoped Shirley Valentine would help me figure it all out. And she did. During Tech Week, I learned I liked the work. Silently moving around the stage in a black t-shirt and black jeans, setting and clearing furniture like ninjas. But much more than that, I simply liked being in the theater, hearing the stage manager and the ASM telling jokes to each other over the intercom, Noticing that adding a single Fresnel to a light wash changed the way the stage looked. And listening to Joanna and the director talk about a certain line, speaking a kind of shorthand to each other. I liked that the drudgery and panic of tech had us all a little bit on edge, our most alive selves. I liked that we were solving problems in the service of making art. And I liked that everyone treated me as a partner in making that art. A junior partner, yes, but a partner. Especially Joanna, who is exceptionally kind. The show had been mounted first in an outdoor theater in upstate Door County, and transferring it to Milwaukee required some last-minute redesign, so the designers and the director had to fix endless technical snafus during Tech Week. The first best thing about Tech Week was that during that time, I sat in the green room upstairs and talked with Joanna Morrison. With Shirley Valentine. As far as I was concerned, they were the same person. In the years afterward, as I told and retold this story to everyone I met, I could not remember, for example, whether Johanna Morrison, the actress, was from England. When she spoke to me, was it in Shirley's working-class Liverpudlian accent, a plummy Royal Academy of Drama voice, or in a flat American tone? One afternoon in that upstairs lounge, Johanna asked me where I was planning to go to college. I said I hadn't decided yet. I wanted to study theater. I was applying to four or five schools, but I hadn't fallen in love yet. Johanna was an acting professor, it turned out, in North Carolina. North Carolina, she said, doing the accent perfectly. And she told me I'd love it there. 
Oh, it's grand. You can act and direct shows from your first year, she said. Or or maybe, it's great. They'll let you act and direct as a freshman. I don't know. (laughs) I know I told her excitedly how much I always wanted to do that. How directing plays that I wrote was my real dream. What I remember clearly is not her exact words, but the way she treated me as someone worth giving advice to. Someone with a future worth talking about. I was invited to the opening night party, but I didn't think to bring a change of clothes. So I remember sitting on the stairs in the audience bank and my stagehand blacks. I watched Johanna and her husband, surrounded by well-wishers, holding forth like theatrical royalty. Her husband was also a theater teacher, she told me, and a director. In my memory, he wore an ascot. I think it's very unlikely that was actually the case. But looking at them, I realized that was what I wanted. Not her. I mean... I had a big crush on her, but even in the full bloom of 16-year-old lust, I knew that was patently absurd. She was old, for starters, which is to say younger than I am now. (laughs) No, what I wanted was to go someplace far away and do amazing things, so that when I came back to Milwaukee, it would be as the person at the center of the circle, drinking wine, not the kid on the edges, drinking a Coke. I wanted a big life. Shirley Valentine is a two-act play. Act one is set in Shirley's kitchen in Liverpool. In the first scene, she makes chips and egg for her husband's dinner. She really cooked in our production. We had a little gas burner embedded in the fake range. Every night, she actually fried a couple of eggs while she talked to the audience. Well, she talked to Wall, the kitchen wall, the only person she talks to now that her children are gone. Shirley tells Wall about how her friend bought tickets for Greece, and she wants to go but she doesn't have the guts to ask her husband, Joe. In the second scene, it's the day of her flight. Her bags are packed, but she's agonizing to wall over whether to leave. Act two is set on the beach in Greece, where a tan and happy Shirley reveals all that's happened to her new friend, Rock. Joe isn't a bad guy, exactly, not as Shirley describes him. He's just absent and inconsiderate and extremely set in his ways. He's stopped loving Shirley, stopped seeing her, really. I would sit in that lounge upstairs during every show, doing my homework or trying to read a book, but really, I would be listening to Shirley Valentine. I grew to love that play. It was a storehouse of wisdom about how to treat a woman, for one thing. Shirley is very funny on the way that guys never really listen to women and how they drive conversations where they want them to go. Because, you know, most men, really, they're no good at talking with women. They don't know how to listen, or else they feel they, they have to take over the conversation. Like most fellas, if you said something like, like, my favourite season is autumn, well, most fellas would go, is it? My favourite season, spring. See, what I like about spring is that in spring, and then you get ten minutes of what he likes about spring, and you weren't even talking about spring. You were talking about autumn. I had a lot of time to listen. It was really a very easy stagehand gig, much simpler than other jobs I'd have later in other theatres. We had to set the eggs in the onstage fridge and arrange the other cooking stuff before the show. At intermission, we had to switch out the kitchen set for the Greek beach set. We only had one change to make under time pressure. 
Between those scenes in Act 1, we had to go out in the dark and clean up the kitchen, collecting the fried eggs, the pans, the fake styrofoam chips, while backstage a dresser quickly changed Shirley into her traveling clothes. We had two minutes and 37 seconds to accomplish this change, which is the running time of the song that played during the blackout, When I'm 64, by the Beatles. By the third week of performances, we had the changes down, me and the other stagehand, the union guy. I remember us giving each other five backstage, done with the change while the song was still in the bridge. And we'd look at each other backstage and sing in unison with McCartney, Vera, Chuck, and Dave. I can't remember that stagehand's name. I'll call him Chuck. So, now, it is sometime that third week of the run, and we've got this down to a science, me and Chuck. We do our presets, we tell Joanna break a leg, and we head up to the green room, and I pull my homework out of my backpack, and we hear the audience quiet as the lights go down, and through the intercom speakers, we hear Shirley say her first lines of the show. You know, I like a glass of wine when I'm doing the cooking. Don't have all... Don't I like a glass of wine when I'm preparing the evening meal? <laughs> Chips and egg. And then I realize, oh my God, I forgot to set the eggs. I completely panic. I lose it. I drop my homework and run to the green room fridge where we keep all the eggs in between shows. And there they are just sitting there, the four eggs that in just about 15 minutes, Shirley is supposed to start cooking on stage, but she can't because I screwed it up. That is the whole business of act one, scene one. She makes fake chips and real eggs, but she can't make pretend eggs because what is she supposed to do? Mime the eggs? Oh God. 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 And, and Chuck, who is an adult, calmly rips a page out of my AP English notebook finds a magic marker, and writes in big letters, eggs in pantry. And he says, basically, Dan, stop it. Stop freaking. Take the eggs and wait backstage behind the door to the pantry. Stay where the audience won't see you when she opens the door. And he walks out of the lounge with the sign. I take the eggs. I carry them carefully down the stairs into the wings. I sort of stumble for a second and imagine the eggs flying through the air, but I keep it together. I peek through a curtain hole and see Chuck sitting halfway down the aisle in the audience bank, holding the sign he made down by his feet where audience members can't see it, but where Johanna hopefully can. And so I, I crouch in the dark behind the pantry door. I hold the eggs and I wait, sweating and terrified, wondering if I ruin the show. Wondering how I'll explain to my mom and Mr. Young if I get fired from a job as a non-union stagehand halfway through the run. Wondering what Johanna is going to think of me, the dumb kid who screwed up the one job he had. Will she see the sign? Will she get what Chuck means by the sign? Will she be able to... But then the door opens and she comes through it in the middle of a line and I gawp and hold out the eggs, and she takes them, and she looks right at me, still talking, and she winks, and closes the door. Winks. As if, as if we were in cahoots, or something. As if this was just another lark, a funny story to tell at another opening night party while sipping a glass of wine. The next morning, I went to the guidance office at my high school and used the phone to call the admissions office of the University of North Carolina and ask them to send me an application, please. 
The lady in the admissions office had the kind of southern accent you hear in movies. She sounded like an actress. I got in. I applied to Carolina late, but I was a good tester and I got in. It was 1991, not 2020, when a kid with my academic record would need his parents to donate, like, a business school. I think I wrote some dumb essay about how being a stagehand on Shirley Valentine changed my life. By the time UNC accepted me, I'd already done all my college visits, but somehow I talked my dad into driving me to Chapel Hill during spring break. On the way down, we stopped overnight in, I still remember this, Beaver Lick, Kentucky, just off I-75, right down the road from Big Bone Lick State Park. We, we laughed for like a week about that. When I got to Chapel Hill, I took a tour and saw the outside of the theater building. Students were gone for break and everything was locked up tight. But up by the student union was a billboard for the drama department's big show for the spring, Crimes of the Heart. I knew that play and the campus. Oh, the campus was about the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. Bear in mind I was comparing it to Syracuse in January. My parents and my friends couldn't believe I was heading south. Farther south than anyone in my family had ever been. Farther south than anyone in my high school was going. My girlfriend went to Madison, like maybe 40% of my graduating class. She, in particular, couldn't believe I wasn't going to Madison with her. But that August, I said goodbye to her and to my friends and to Wisconsin and drove down to North Carolina again with my parents. We all laughed at Big Bone Lick together. Could that possibly be right? They'd only been divorced three years at that point, and they weren't on the greatest terms, but they were both at orientation with me, so I guess that is what happened. Memories of that time consist of vivid and sharp moments with long, detail-free feelings in between them. The moments are things like my parents riding the elevator up to my dorm room with me, or meeting the woman I would eventually marry on a volleyball court the first day of classes, or my, my mortifying interview to become a DJ at the super eclectic college radio station, even though I only ever listened to REM. Those were the moments, but the feeling was this sense that the world had indeed opened up, that I was someplace big, far bigger than me, a place that could swallow me whole unless I worked hard to make myself seen the feeling that something was beginning. I was going to play it cool with Johanna Morrison, obviously. I was both a little embarrassed at my previous crush on her and also deep, deep down thinking, well, this was fate. Although, of course, I was very devoted to my high school girlfriend and we were going to make it work. Anyway, I didn't want her to think I was a stalker. I wasn't. I had applied out of semi- infatuation, but I was here for myself, not for her. But what would she do when she saw me? Of course, probably she wouldn't even recognize me. I was a, a tiny blip, the second best stagehand on a show she'd done half a year ago. Just, just one show in a whirlwind of acting and teaching and parties and marriage. But wasn't it possible that I had meant something to her? That she remembered this kid she told about North Carolina all those months ago. That the fun and excitement of those weeks in Milwaukee would come back to her when she saw me in the halls of the theater building. Dan, she would say, maybe with Shirley's British accent. Dan, love, you're here. 
She'd take me under her wing, introduce me around, tell the story of the eggs. I'd refer to my cool-headedness under pressure without being braggy, of course. The other faculty would nod. Mm-hmm. Give me parts in their shows. I didn't understand that there was no Johanna Morrison until the first day of classes, when I mentioned her to my Drama 10 professor, and he said, Who? He didn't know her. Had never heard of her. I don't know, maybe she teaches somewhere else, he said. She doesn't teach here. Was she in the communication studies department, or English, or something? I went to the library and found the faculty directory and looked her up. No, Johanna Morrison, in any department. Who was she? Where had she gone? Whose life was she living? I confess that in that pre-internet era, I had not done much due diligence looking into UNC's theater program before I arrived. The school had a brochure about its various arts programs, which didn't list individual faculty. I'd applied late. I'd rushed my decision. I never actually talked to anyone from the drama department. It was a series of idiotic mistakes that I like to imagine no one in 2020 would ever make. A bit of simple Googling would answer the question, is this amazing actress actually a professor at the school she's talked me into applying to? I checked out a copy of Shirley Valentine from the university library and reread it. I heard every line in her voice, and I thought of her sitting in the bright lights in her bathing suit, considering her life up till that moment. What I kept thinking about was how I'd lived such a little life. And one way or another, even that would be over pretty soon. I thought to myself, my life has been a crime, really. A crime against God, because I didn't live it fully. I'd allowed myself to live this little life, when inside me there was so much. Her name isn't Shirley Valentine, for most of the play. It's Shirley Bradshaw. Shirley Valentine is her maiden name, who she used to be. But then, by the end of the play, it's who she is again. She embraces more. She stays in Greece and gets a job as a waitress. She lives. And I didn't know where my Shirley Valentine had gone. But I like to imagine her on that beach, talking to Rock, living the big life she taught me was a possibility. The big life I was setting out to live. I did finally find Johanna Morrison. 25 years later, we met in Hartford, Connecticut, where she still taught theater and acted. When we met for lunch at a cafe in town, she wore a brilliant white pantsuit. I'm a monochrome person, she said in her British accent. Her face was the same as I remembered, a vivacious actor's face that worked hard in conversations, responding to nearly every word I said, with a raised eyebrow, or a smile, or a twinkle. I'd emailed her that, as a teenager, I had worked on that Milwaukee production of Shirley Valentine. Before our spinach salads arrived, she said, Will you please forgive me for saying that I don't actually remember you? I told her, no, of course, there's no reason she would. As I recounted the disaster of the eggs, she laughed. Oh, I do think I remember that. I worried that I'd traumatize her, but she said that after the torture of Door County, where raccoons peed on the stage mid-show, nothing we could have done in Milwaukee could have faced her in the least. When I told her the story of my college decision, she smiled 
and I saw the actor inside her switch on. She gave me a tiny gift. I'm beginning to remember you a bit more. You were very kind and well-mannered. I do remember that. I truly do. And you did have stars in your eyes. She sipped her tea fondly. It was a wonderful lunch, during which I learned just how much I'd never known about her and that show, how the nature of memory was such that I didn't even truly know anymore what I remembered wrong, what I'd subconsciously changed all the times I'd retold this story, what I'd never even known in the first place. But I already knew the answer to the most important question of how it was I ended up at UNC and she wasn't there at all. My sophomore year in college, the World Wide Web finally came to Carolina. And at some point in the computer lab in the basement of the undergrad library, it came to me that I should search for Johanna Morrison. The internet was still in its infancy, but her name had to come up for some theater company somewhere, right? So I went to altavista.com and typed in Johanna Morrison plus North Carolina, and there she was, a headshot for a show at the North Carolina Shakespeare Festival. I clicked on the page and read her bio. Johanna Morrison teaches acting at the North Carolina School of the Arts. It turned out that for all those years, Shirley Valentine hadn't been in Greece. She'd been 75 miles away in Winston-Salem. My daughter will be applying to colleges someday. And I'll tell her the story, of course. Because it all worked out fine. I loved school and found friends and a wife and eventually the big life I dreamed of. Even though I made my college decision for the absolute stupidest possible reason you can imagine. But when I think of this story, I don't think of that lesson. I still think of her. Here's to you, Shirley Valentine. Thank you for your patience and your kindness. Thank you for that wink, which sent my life spinning in a direction I never could have anticipated. I'm sorry I blew it. I guess I wasn't listening as carefully as I thought I was, sitting in that green room in 1991 with stars in my eyes. You weren't talking about spring at all. You were talking about autumn. Extra special thanks to Joe Morrison for reviving her role as Shirley Valentine and, well, as herself. Okay, Dan, now we know how you ended up in the school you ended up in. Given this, what advice are you going to give her about finding schools? Because essentially you say, like, it was fine. I ended up here for kind of the wrong reasons. But what does that transfer into for, like, advice for the kids? I think the advice is that it doesn't matter, right? That if you go into whatever your college experience is going to be, or even a non-college experience, even if you decide not to do college but do some other route, that if you go into it with the expectation that, you can make something big and exciting out of it, probably you're gonna. Like if you go into it in that kind of spirit, you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours obsessing about whether like the quad at UVA is better for you personally than the quad somewhere else. Like that should probably in the end doesn't make that much of a difference. You were excited and you thought this place held all these things. And so whether it really did or not, was sort of sure, after the brief moment of crushing like humiliation. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. But I mean, <laughs> right. But yes, I went there, I thought because of this person, 
But really, I was going there because of what that person represented to me, which was a very particular kind of like enthusiastic pursuit of an exciting big life. And I was still able to do that. And so wherever you end up at this stage in your life, at the like 17, 18, 19 part of your life, if you go into it with a real desire for something you can get out of it, some kind of person you can become there, it probably doesn't matter what the thing is. Like that's transferable to almost any human experience. How do you think that something like this could play out with one of your kids today now that the internet exists and it would be so easy to answer some of the questions that you'd had without having to wait years and years? I mean, surely this would never happen, right? I mean, my assumption is something this stupid would never happen today. I do think, though, that... My kids in particular and kids in general, I think, are very likely to take what they see on the Internet at face value. And Mm -hmm. so when a kid is, for example, making a college decision, I think they are very likely to maybe lack a certain amount of skepticism about the way the school is presenting itself online, about the kind of experience the school says it's going to offer in their marketing or other materials. I don't know if that transfers to real life. I don't know if kids today on a tour are more likely to like ask the questions that I never asked on that tour because it didn't even dawn on me to do that. But I do wonder if the sense my kids have that if it's on the internet, it's real in some ways, realer than real life will transfer in some way to them being a little bit credulous about these things. I also think that the internet means that when my kids get to the college decision point, it seems kind of impossible to even make that first cut that you have to make when you're doing a college decision, right? Like there's a whole universe of schools out there. You have to decide, well, what are even the 25 say that I'm even going to think about that? I'm even going to spend five minutes looking at that's even before you do the cut of what are the five or whatever I'm going to apply to, you know, in 1991, that 25 was basically, these are the 25 schools that my guidance counselor has brochures for. And that was it. Like, that was how I made my decision of what I was going to look at. UNC wasn't in that pile, so I didn't even think about UNC until I got sold on it accidentally by someone else. And so I do wonder if there's going to be a kind of paralysis of choice. And I'm very curious if listeners who have kids who've gone through this college decision have experienced that, that your kid sits down and absent a lot of guidance from some kind of outside source, they just feel a little bit overwhelmed by the sheer number of possible college experiences they could have because they all have equal weight on the internet. It made me think of the ways that college students rally around their school or present their school online, you know, and I I follow a number of... And alumni. Yeah, and alumni for sure. I went to Howard in D.C. It's a fabled HBCU, so there's that going for it. But there's also just the way that alum are so loud and proud about having gone to Howard and just seeing how the younger, you know, Howard students, and I follow some accounts that are, you know, run by current students or they retweet current students. And I see like, just the way that they talk about like, okay, HU 2020, we're doing this, we're doing that. And I think of teenage Jamila as looking at not necessarily making a decision 100% based on this, but like, if I'm following a cute boy, who's a sophomore, 
at that school and he seems smart. And I, I just wonder how that might have factored into my decision or, or my passion for Howard. Or maybe I would have been directed towards Spellman because there was a cute Morehouse boy there or something. And just in general, that like social media enthusiasm, which I think really does exist for many schools, but there are certain schools that it's like, it's huge, right? It's like, you know, I think of SEC schools or a lot of HBCUs. I think of those schools as having like just really active, loud and proud online fandoms, both among students and alumni. I do think that that is, is like interesting and appealing for a certain kind of kid who lives online. That provides a kind of authority that maybe like a guidance counselor or a parent does not. Isn't kind of your point though, that even if you end up at the wrong place, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter as long as you can get there. Right. I think it doesn't. But what I see here in Arlington, at least, is that there's like a solid two years of kids just like obsessing about this and their parents obsessing about it. And part of it, I think, probably is the sheer number of options that they have. And certainly in a privileged place like North Arlington, those options are much broader than they are for lots of other kids in a way that obviously has its real benefits. But I think in the moment of making a decision can be paralyzing in a way. But yeah, it does seem like there's just an enormous amount of like wasted effort and energy into something where probably if you just put the names of 20 colleges on a dartboard that you can afford without going into debt and threw a dart at them, and went to the one that it landed on, you'd be fine. All right, listeners, I would love to hear your stories of the crazy decisions you made in the pre-internet era before you knew anything about anything. And those of you who have kids who are on this college track, do you think that like they're paralyzed by choice? Do you think there's too much for them to think about? Do you think they're freaking out in a way that worries you? I'd like to hear about that too. Send us an email at slate.com or post on the Facebook page. Thanks for listening to my story, guys. And listeners, next week we'll have another Everyone is Fighting Now segment. Um, We'll probably do another interview, so let us know who you'd like to hear from, what kind of person you'd like us to be talking to, or your kids would like us to be talking to. Drop us an email at slate.com. All right, the show isn't over yet. It is time for recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you have to recommend? So I am recommending doing a time capsule with your kids for COVID-19. And there is a wonderful printable from kittycharts.com that we've linked to in the show notes. It's just a great way to kind of sum up the experience. It has some coloring pages and also ask some things about your kids, but then encourages you to write letters about the time and write a letter to your child. And we've just been working through it one page at a time. And I plan to take a picture of it because I'm sure I won't hold on to this piece of paper. But it's been a really nice way to kind of process what's going on and also find out what they find interesting about this time. And I am sure that it's something we will want to look back on. And my kids got kind of interested in this because for the new year, they got this Peaceable Kingdom time capsule kit, which has like a ton of prompts and cards and a thing to put it all in and keep it all in that we have been doing as well for this year. But I really like this printable because it has some stuff about COVID-19, but also asks some specific questions about it. So a great way to maybe summarize some of the stuff we're going through and be able to look back at it in the future. That is a good recommendation. Harper, for her English class, has been keeping a coronavirus quarantine diary, um, which is why she asked me the other day, Dad, does stir crazy have a hyphen in it? (laughs) But um, I do think that like keeping track of this weird time will be so interesting to them in the future and to us as well. Good recommendation. Jamila, what about you? Okay, so with the caveat that the thing I wanted to recommend is currently unavailable on Amazon, which means a number of people have purchased it since I have. 
There are other companies that make a product very similar to it. I want to recommend the Easy Wash Mobile Washer, but they're not the only game in town. There are other companies that make a device that looks like this. It's essentially like a plunger of sorts that's designed for hand washing your clothes. And so if you are like me and live in a building that has a laundry room, but have decided that you don't want to expose yourself to your neighbors because you see their comings and goings and you realize that they're not socially distancing as much as you'd like and you don't want your clothes mingling with theirs or, you know, some of them are going to work or you just simply don't have access to a washing machine. I got a big, huge pail and I did my first load yesterday. It came out fine. It smells nice. You don't necessarily need a device to do this, but it's one thing to hand wash underwear or something very delicate. But when you want to break up some of that dirt from your child rolling around on the floor in boredom, you may need a little bit of help. And it's pretty cool. I mean, it definitely reminded me a little bit of watching an episode of I Love Lucy or something. But um, it's maybe 20 or 30 bucks and a mobile washer. I think that it will make this process a lot easier. Do you use um, regular like laundry detergent with it? You use regular liquid laundry detergent. You can't use Tide Packs. Don't throw a Tide Pod in there. Not throw a Tide Pod (laughs) in there. And I heard from a good source that you really don't want to bust one of those open and get it on your hands. It may burn. You know, don't try that. If you absolutely had to use a Tide Pod to wash your clothes, you need to dissolve it uh, in water. Basically make liquid detergent out of a Tide Pod, which is certainly a very poor use of money. But in a pinch, I suppose it would do. But yeah, this beats the dirt. It lets you like beat the dirt out of the clothes, rinsed and washed and rinsed again a few times before I felt like everything was adequately clean and sanitized. And it's hanging on my patio now. So hopefully it'll actually get warm enough in California for my clothes to dry. The opinions of Jamila Lemieux about whether Tide Ponds will burn your hands reflect only (laughs) her own beliefs and are not repeated by Slate.com or anyone else who works here. Great recommendation. I love that. I will have to look into that because hand washing is a problem around here. I'm recommending a hammock because right now uh, what is at a premium in our house is ways to be alone. (laughs) It is very (laughs) difficult to be alone in our house and a hammock is a great way to be alone. We got one last week for Lyra for her birthday, which is coming up very shortly from a site called hammock universe. It costs less than 200 bucks for a big, beautiful Brazilian hammock. And also the stand that it attaches to, which is super easy to put together, even for someone like me who doesn't know how to do anything. So now it is sitting out on our back patio and on nice days, we've had several nice days already this spring when someone needs some alone time, including me, They just head out there and they sit in the hammock and you can't be seen very well from inside. So people don't notice you're there and you can just read or listen to music or play on your phone for a little bit. It is totally great. Very affordable for how much pleasure I believe it is going to deliver over the course of the summer. Get yourself a hammock if you have a place to put it. Have you seen those like zip up weather pod things? You like put it around you and zip it up. I don't know. Moms have them at soccer. Dads have them too at soccer practice and stuff, you know, to sit in so they don't get wet. So we don't have them. You can be like bubble boy while you're sitting in the rain. Yeah, that's what they do. And then they, you know, cheer from in there and they have all their stuff. (laughs) Just a wine wine cooler and they're ready to go. I'm making fun of it, but I know I'm like a year away from it. It's the only thing that will protect you from the pollen in Florida. Yeah, exactly. But I'm saying you could just zip it up in your house. There's absolutely no way that if I was zipped up in something like that in my house that I would be alone for more than seven seconds. Are you crazy? Like Harper would immediately be up there being like, what is that? What can I get in that? Why can't I use that? Can I get in it? 
Yeah, but you would get one for everyone. You'd be like, that's you know, here you go. (laughs) Everyone needs their own fort. I encourage you, Elizabeth, to look into the cost. Sounds like a better idea. The hammock sounds like a better idea. (laughs) All right. Good recommendations, everyone. Thank you for listening. That's our show. If you have a question, email us at momandad at slate.com. Please join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson for Jamila Lemieux and Elizabeth Newcamp. I'm Dan Coyce. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.